0: All right, Matthew 9 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for being able to open our worship with... A time of just uh, reflecting on what Advent means in this season and being able to build up to your birth, coming to earth as our Messiah. I thank you that uh, we get to study a passage today uh, regarding your authority, regarding you as king and being able to to understand a little more what that means as, as disciples, as Jesus followers. So I pray that you would give Mike the words um, as he... Um, just encourages us from this text, help our hearts to be open and humble to the Spirit's leading, in your name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, how are we, family? Good. How's everyone else? Good deal. All right. Let's get to this. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Taproot. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here and get to continue our way through um, the Gospel of Matthew. And I'll start off this morning with this. How many of you have ever uh, experienced writer's block? (laughs) Come on. You're wondering where this is going, right? I think if writers can have writer's block, preachers can have preacher's block too, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's about how I feel this morning. This has, been, this has been an interesting text for me to work through and try to process, uh, kind of like we talked about last week. You know, as we work through this narrative, uh, the way that this works is, is not necessarily that we're supposed to come away with like three points of application every week. Sometimes uh, we're intended to, to really just look at the text and be in awe of who Jesus is. And... And I think part of the question that we have to ask, and this, this text really drives at that, and so part of the question we have to ask, even as we gather together as a church on Sundays, is like, why are we here? Why are you here? I think so often the local church gathering is, is built around this, some, some idea of a performance. We, we, we like to gravitate towards our preferences, and so we select uh, spaces that have good music and spaces that have good preaching in spaces that have good, you know, child care and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, like, that's not why the church gathers. We gather uh, to be in awe of Jesus and to be equipped as followers of Jesus. And so uh, regardless of what may or may not be said this morning, <laughs> my hope and prayer for us is that we would be uh, left in awe of Jesus because that's really where this text is taking us. I was, I was chatting with uh, Will in the office this morning and just wrestling through this with him and, and it's good he read through the text as well and he, he just had these thoughts that like it seems like Matthew is just wanting us to see that with Jesus there's just something new like there's something different. Uh, interestingly enough I wrote that exact thing down right before he said that and so I think that's just like this confirmation of this reality that, that this is what this text is getting at and so that's what we'll drive at this morning. I do have a few points that we'll, we'll eventually work through but uh, with that side note let's uh, start for real okay. Uh, so religion, uh, if, if you've been a part of Tabroot for any length of time, you've heard us talk about religion, and uh, most often when we mention the word religion, uh, we do so in a way that is negative, right? Uh, when, when we talk about religion, uh, we're talking about particularly the, this idea that we have the ability in and of ourselves uh, to impress God, or or maybe, maybe not even that, maybe religion is more... Um, our beliefs or our understandings about what we think we have to do to impress God and keep God happy in some way, shape, or form, right? So religion, when we talk about religion, we talk about it in a negative sense because it it really kind of highlights our own efforts, our own works, our own abilities, our our own attempts to somehow uh, make God happy. And it kind of just like uh, slips around, moves around Jesus, like, you know, Jesus is, is cool in some way, shape, or form, but at the end of the day, uh, we believe that somehow, some way, we have to figure out how to do that which is right to keep God happy. I was having a conversation about this this last week uh, with someone that, that even, even in Protestant church world, the evangelical church world, where we, where we heavily emphasize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus alone. And we, we throw out and heavily emphasize, like, you can't do anything to earn God's love. You can't do anything on, in and of yourself that will earn your, your way to heaven. Uh, we, we emphasize that. But then the, the emphasized message throughout our life as followers of Jesus easily turns into a focus on all that you're doing wrong, which at the end of the day is really just another version of Works. It, 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 it's trying to emphasize, well, these are all of the things that you're doing wrong, and, and thus these are all of the ways in which God is displeased with you. And so fix these things. Right? Fix the ways in which God is displeased with you. Make him happy, and then you'll be on your way. Oh, and by the way, grace and faith. But... Jesus breaks all of these boxes open. Like, Jesus absolutely flips our world and flips the world of religious people upside down. Like, like every single neat category that we feel like we can fit God into, Jesus just kind of tears it down. And, and Jesus deals with religious people in a different way and shocks them in, in ways that often are, are shocking to us as well, right? Now, before getting into Jesus' words, I wanted to look really quick at some of the things that Paul says about uh, religion and these kind of religious practices. Over in, in Colossians chapter 2, yeah, Paul says this in verse 20, he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then, just a couple pages later, or cha- uh, books later, in James, we see another mention of this, this word religion and this idea of religion. James writes this he says, If anyone, this is James 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it's interesting, about, there's a couple things interesting about this. First, the word religion is only used four times in the New Testament, uh, and we just read all of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you noticed, but three of the uses are what? They're negative. And then James kind of gives a correction there as to what a positive aspect of religion might look like. But for the most part, it's, it's just this, this negative connotation. And so religion, to many of us, represents a system or systems that carry quite a lot of baggage with them. Uh, and they're, they're systems that, like Paul addresses in Colossians, are, are filled mostly with Restrictions. And then by obeying these restrictions, we make God happy, keep God happy, keep ourselves pure, or so the thinking goes. But this is not how following Jesus works, right? Because the problem at the end of the day is that religious practices don't ultimately address the heart, right? And that's what Paul says there in Colossians. He's like, these, these things, they have a, a way of, of making our appearance seem holy, seem righteous, seem better in some way, shape, or form, but they're just outward acts that don't actually address the motives in the heart. So go back again to Colossians and listen to the whole context here. Listen to what Paul says. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So he's, he's addressing a church in which uh, people from the outside are trying to place more restrictions on, on followers of Jesus. And Paul is saying, don't, don't let them influence you, essentially. And then he goes on, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, who is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is So what Paul wants to make clear then is this, is like, well, what's the solution? If the solution is not just some sort of outward action or performance, then what is it? And Paul says, well, Jesus is the solution. He clarifies that for us as followers of Jesus, that Jesus is the substance, that he is the head, and that Jesus moves us beyond the elementary. And so the whole point there, and in Paul's writings, The whole point in the entirety of the New Testament, the whole point in the Gospel of Matthew is this reality, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so... In our text, as Matthew continues to move us along with the, uh, what we have is a continuation of what we've already seen. Matthew just continues to build on what we've been through in Matthew 8. Jesus continues to, to heal, he continues to do these miraculous things. The big difference that we see as we move into Matthew chapter 9 is that Jesus now begins to have confrontations with religious people. He, continue, he, he now begins to have confrontations, or, or Jesus continues to stay his course. But the religious people don't like what he's doing. They don't like how he's doing it. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like the crowds that are gathering around him. The religious people are, are, are now beginning to make it their goal in life to stop what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus begins to have these confrontations with the religious people, particularly scribes and Pharisees, and we'll see this confrontation continue to work itself out throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. But what we need to see this morning, and this is, this is the big idea, like this is just, this is the point, is that Jesus is better. If we, like if we can walk away from anything this morning, whether I say anything helpful or unhelpful, if we can walk away with this reality, that Jesus is better better, than I think we've walked away with what we've needed to walk away with. And so I just have three points. So we're going to see that Jesus is better, number one, because he forgives sins. We'll see that he's better, number two, because he befriends sinners. And we'll see that he is better, number three, because he is the presence of joy. And then uh, let's just correlate with each of these paragraphs. And so we're just going to take these paragraphs uh, one by one. Kind of make some comments on them, a little bit of application, and and move on. So verse 1, chapter 9. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus So let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, first off, if you remember last week, we, uh, we referenced the Gospel of Mark, and we talked about how uh, as we work through the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so those are called the Synoptic Gospels in particular, as we work through those, we see a lot of similar stories, right? But within those stories, uh, we also see a lot of differences, uh, differences in, in timeline and, and, and details and so on and so forth. And we said that our goal, our job, is not to harmonize the Gospels. In other words, we don't have to try to make every detail fit into its proper place, but rather we can understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, were writing with different intentions to different audiences. And so the variances are okay. We don't have to try to harmonize and get everything to line up and fit in its neat little order. What we can do, though... Is, is I think specifically we can rely a lot on Mark's gospel because uh, most believe that Mark was written first. Mark was most likely the first gospel. And Mark's gospel was also more than likely Matthew's resource, like Matthew's source text, if you will. So a lot of Matthew's uh, gospel comes from Mark's gospel, but he does it obviously differently. And so some of those differences uh, I want to just bring out here. So we have, these, we have these men who bring a paralyzed friend to Jesus. Okay, you know, so here's, here's the scene, and, and Mark kind of gives us a bit more uh, detail. And, and one of the reasons is that Mark, Mark likes to get into some of the specific details of humans. Uh, Matthew focuses more on just Jesus. Right? Uh, but what we know from Mark is this, is that Jesus finally arrives at his home in what is at this point Capernaum. And my guess is uh, Jesus is probably tired. Like I I can only imagine that Jesus wants to rest because he's been working nonstop, healing people. And and I don't know if you've noticed, but he's been trying to get away from the crowds. Jesus' introverted self is coming out. (laughs) And he fell asleep on the boat. And he couldn't even get rest there because the disciples freaked out in the midst of a storm. And so they went and woke Jesus up. And so uh, he was with them as they got and finally get to the other side of, of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And he arrives at his home and guess what's there? Crowds. Now Mark 2 uh, tells us, this is where we, will, we also see this story is in Mark chapter 2. And Mark 2 tells us this, he, Mark tells us that uh, the house is filled with people, like it's it's packed. I don't, I, don't, I don't know the size of the house, uh, but you couldn't get in the door. That's how many people there were. Uh, and it kind of gives us this idea that there were so many people that it was just kind of flooding outside. That there was, so the house was flooded, and people were just flooding out the doors, all wanting to get around Jesus, hear his teaching, and ultimately to be healed by him. And so then these men come. And again, this is a detail that Mark gives us. We know that there's four men and they bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they get there, and guess what's there? Crowds. And so they, the crowd is so thick that they can't even get to Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they, I, I don't know how they do this. They take their friend up on the roof. Right, so somehow, some way, they get their friend up on the roof. These four men get their friend on the roof. Uh, and the idea of what they do is they literally dig through the roof. Uh, so we have to imagine they didn't have asphalt shingles. <laughs> uh, it, more than likely the, the roof of the house was made of mud Dirt in some shape or form And so the idea is that they literally dug Through the roof and then They lowered their friend Onto the floor In front of Jesus right? here, here's where here's where this was challenging for me uh, I remember Hearing a sermon once on this and this whole The whole focus on the sermon is like How innovative will we be for Jesus And for some reason, that just sticks in my head. And yet, I know it's not the point of text. (laughs) I I think that's like, in some way, shape, or form, an example of what religion can do to us. It's these these thoughts, these ideas, these pathways uh, that kind of like, you know, keep Jesus close as a friend and they get stuck in our heads, but then they ultimately miss the big picture and ultimately miss Jesus. At any rate, This is the scene that's set before us. Uh, I think what's also interesting is we don't know anything about the paralyzed man other than the fact that he's paralyzed. Matthew, Mark, Luke, no one describes the man's faith. The faith that's described is the faith of the four men who bring the paralyzed men to Jesus, Uh, which is an interesting thing, and if I remember, we'll apply something to it in just a little bit. But the story goes on. And we see Jesus sees their faith because literally he saw them dropping this guy through the roof. Right? So faith is this visible reality. It's not telling us, it's not telling us that Jesus was like able to peer into their hearts and see some form of belief. Jesus saw an action. Right? Like Jesus saw something being done, right? which indicates to us something about faith. And his response to them is this: "Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven." Now, I think that's I think that's beautiful. I also think that the paralyzed man was probably a little bit disappointed, and and so are his friends. Because why did they come? They didn't. They didn't come for forgiveness of sins. They, they wanted their friend to be healed. They heard about Jesus' healing powers. They heard about Jesus' authority over uh, the water and wind. And so their line of thinking is like, well, if Jesus can, you know, calm a storm, surely he can heal our paralyzed friend. They want their friend healed. And Jesus' response is, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And then here we have the interaction with the scribes, the religious people. And so the scribes, the scribes are representative, really, of the teachers. So they, were, they were the interpreters of Scripture and the teachers of Scripture. And so the scribes, knowing Scripture better than anyone else, automatically jump on what they perceive to be wrong with Jesus' statement. And so they respond, verse four, but, uh, or sorry, verse three, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In other words, their perception of what Jesus has just said is he's putting himself in the place of God. Uh, again, this is uh, something that Mark does for us. Mark adds a, a phrase uh, with the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and so Matthew very clearly wants us to see Something of the person of Jesus coming through here in regards to his authority, in regards to his abilities, in regards to what he's ultimately about. And so they question what Jesus is doing. Why are you saying that you can forgive sins? This is blasphemy. You're making yourself equal with God. But Jesus, verse 4, the ESV says, knowing, I think, uh, uh, can just as equally be perceiving, I think the idea here is that Jesus is, is present with these people and he sees how they're thinking, right? So imagine, imagine yourself in an interaction or in a conversation with someone and you're just kind of observing and you can perceive what they're thinking, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He sees like they're processing. He sees they're murmuring with each other and he, he's, he's perceiving like, oh, you guys, you guys think that this is a problem, don't you? And so he perceives their thoughts and says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? Right? So, so right there, Jesus is, is blowing away their preconceived categories and their preconceived notions of who God is and ultimately who the Messiah is going to wind up being, which we know is, is Jesus. But they're, they're under-informed about the reality of who he is. So verse 5. This is fun. For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Anyone? Anyone want to give an answer there? What is Jesus getting at? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's not, he's not asking, uh, like, literally, verbally, which is easier to say. Like oh well this this phrase has this many words and this phrase has this many words so obvious. that's not what he's getting at. Right? Jesus is just very clearly communicating uh, his authority, and and actually what's interesting is it would it would technically be easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's it's kind of this it's a declaration of authority that doesn't necessarily have to carry anything with it. Uh, Jesus could have just said, your sins are forgiven and just kind of walked away. And everyone could have just been like, well, what is going on? But, but then Jesus, he compounds it by then going and, and healing the man. And so in essence, he, he declares both, right? and, he, and he shows that he has authority to do both. He has authority to forgive sins and to heal people. And so it's, it's not really a matter of what's easier for us to say, but really a matter of us being in awe of Jesus. Simply, and that's exactly what the response is. He declares that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he just kind of adds, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went. And so the crowd saw it, and I love the response. They were afraid and the glorified God who had given such authority to men. So I'll just ask a couple of, of questions here, make a couple just practical observations. First, first is this. I think Matthew intends for us to see that Jesus gives forgiveness of sins to those who have absolutely nothing to offer. Like, I, th- I think that's what we're supposed to see in the interaction with the paralyzed man. And I think, the reason I think this is because a couple things to understand about the culture. First and foremost, it was, it was an honor and shame society. And so what we have to understand about, understand about this man is that he had, he had nothing to offer that would bring him honor. This man's entire, well, I can't say his entire life. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. Ever since he'd been paralyzed, at the very least, his life was nothing but shame. Nothing but shame. Like, he couldn't do anything. And there certainly wasn't any um, technological advances that would help this man along. He was literally Helpless. But for whatever reason, he has these four friends, these four guys who are with him, who are, who are at least willing to take him to Jesus. But not only, not only did he have no standing in the culture, but because he couldn't get anywhere, he also, at least in the eyes of the scribes, I think, didn't have any standing with God either because this man couldn't get himself to the temple. So guess what he's not doing He's not offering sacrifice for sin. He's not worshiping. He's not in community. He's he's not falling in line with the religious traditions and customs. He has has nothing to offer. And yet, notice what Jesus does. I I think this would have shocked this person. Take heart, my son, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And so I think there's the obvious um, spiritual reality that Jesus gets at the heart first. Like, it's great, physical healing, awesome, wonderful. Uh, Someday our bodies will all be just completely healed when we're in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus gets at the heart of the issue and the heart is the need for forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus just declares, your sins are forgiven. But notice too, notice the language of Jesus. I think we're supposed to see the language of Jesus. He says, take heart, my son. I don't think that this man was referenced in this way for a very long time. Because all this Man brought to his family was shame, like disgrace, disgust, worthlessness, an inability to do anything. And yet Jesus is compassionate and tender and says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus is present to forgive sins. I love also going back to the way in which faith works itself out here in the fact that Jesus saw their faith. Bruner points it out like this. He says, quote, the compulsion of faith is to get into the presence of Jesus. Okay. So I want to ask you that. Like what, what is your faith compelling you to do? And uh, it's interesting. I'm really trying to work this out in my own heart and mind because I, I think I think we often sell faith short. We kind of relegate faith to this space of uh, belief and trust that at the end of the day is passive. Oh, I, I believe. I, I trust in my heart, which, which is good. That's a good. That's the starting point. Right? But faith. Faith moves beyond that. Like, faith, faith moves us into a place in which we are compelled to be in the presence of that which our faith is in. Uh, whether that, I don't know, for some reason sports just comes to mind. Sorry. <laughs> People are shaking their heads. <laughs> I, I think sports is a great example of faith, though, right? Like on Sundays, people get up to worship their sports teams. They they don the apparel of their teams, which are most likely losers, <laughs> right? Amen, amen. 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 <laughs> right. Like at the end of the day, like only one team's going to win it all. Uh, but but we can. But we persist. And, and here's how this works itself out. We're we're compelled. We have faith in this group of. Football's the obvious reference here. Uh, we have faith in this group of men who are going to throw a ball around and beat each other up and put more points on the board. And we dedicate to ourselves, ourselves to it, and not all of you, not all of you do this. I sometimes do this. Um, I like being a sports fan. Uh, but we dedicate ourselves week in and week out, and we devote hours and time and attention and money Like, because of the faith that we place in this group of people, it's compelled, it causes us to do something. And that's that's the faith that these men have. I mean, I I, I suppose they could have just as easily, from a distance, had some sort of belief and trust in Jesus and stayed wherever they were and told their friend, hey, you know, this Jesus guy is going around healing people. And if you just like believe in your heart that he'll heal you, I, I think it might happen. But that's not what they do. Because faith compels us to be in the presence of Jesus. Right? Like Faith compels us to realign our lives. It, it compels us to take action in some way, faith, uh, some way shape, or form. This is why James hammers on this idea of faith. James is like, that's great. Like, you can say you have faith all day long. I'm going to show it to you. Right? And so it's, it's demonstrated here because of, because of who Jesus is. Right? And so I, that's what I want us to see. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see the compelling nature of Jesus. Like, and, and that Jesus is so compelling, like, it doesn't just leave us, like, flat-footed in our, on our seats. Like, Jesus compels us to an entirely new way of living where we're willing to do really crazy things. Like, lift a friend, you know, take a friend to Jesus and do whatever it takes to get them in the presence of Jesus. And finally, I just want to ask this question: Do we have a reverent fear of Jesus that glorifies God? Do we have a reverent fear of Jesus that glorifies God? Because this is the response of the crowds. When the crowd saw it; they were afraid. And it's not I don't think it's the idea of terror, it's the idea of reverence. It's it's that they're coming to this realization like that this this man, Jesus, is something more than a man. Right? And so what is your response to Jesus? Right? Like I, I think some of you are here and you like the idea of Jesus. Like you, you like the idea that Jesus seems nice. And that, you know, maybe Jesus can be compatible with your way of living, but that's, that's not how Jesus actually works. Like Jesus calls you to something else. Jesus calls us to a new life. Jesus calls us to uh, allegiance to himself, right? That's, that's what, what he's getting at when he declares himself to be the son of man. It's, it's king language. It's authority language, it's, it's this reality that he is Lord, that he's king over all, and we're intended to fall under his orders and fall under his, his way of life. And his way is better. Because what Jesus offers us is, is forgiveness of sins, which is the ultimate, and healing. So how, how will you respond to Jesus. Number two, Jesus is better because he befriends sinners. Look at verse nine. Let's read. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't think it was a gentle question, just so you know, it, it, this, was, this question is filled with ridicule and hate. Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But then he heard, <clears throat> sorry, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this this passage is, it's one of the most shocking in the Gospels. Uh, it's, It's really hard to figure out how to categorize tax collectors for us, right? don't, don't just think IRS, like, I know a lot of you are like, I wish I didn't have to pay taxes, that's fine, I get it, <laughs> but as followers of Jesus, we should, we should be honest in our taxes, just so you know, right, but, but Matthew, the tax collector, is not just an equivalent to our modern-day IRS, like, the hatred goes much deeper, what we have in, in Matthew, or uh, Levi, he's, he's called Levi in, in Luke and Mark. What we have in Matthew is, is someone who basically deserted his country, Israel, and went to, uh, to serve the Romans. And the way that he did that was by collecting taxes from his own countrymen. And not only would he collect taxes from his own countrymen, but he would, he would tax on top of that in order to put a whole bunch in his own pocket. So he's taxing them and stealing from them for the Romans. In essence, it puts Matthew and any other tax collector in, in the category of just extreme enemy. Like I think you had uh, in in Matthew chapter eight, we had the scenario with the centurion, like the the Roman soldier. I think the tax collectors were more despised than the Roman soldiers. It was they were the lowest of the low. They were the the scummiest of the scummy. Like I, 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 whatever words we can put to just describe that the tax collectors were hated, despised, rejected. Don't keep company. With tax collectors. And yet, what does Jesus do? He says to Matthew, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now I love that. That's just a picture of discipleship, right? If Jesus says, follow me, then what is our life supposed to look like? Following Jesus. like Our life as followers of Jesus is intended to, to be all-encompassed by that reality. That we're learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. This is what Jesus has invited this person into. And then notice it goes deeper. Like, it's not just come and follow me. Jesus actually befriends this person. Like, Jesus actually loves this person. To the point that he's, he's willing to share a meal with this person. Which you just didn't do in Jesus' culture. You didn't share a table with your enemies. And so we obviously have Jesus living out what he's already taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to love your enemies, like he actually meant it to the point that he actually did it. Right? And this was this wasn't just a this wasn't just a one off. Jesus. Just a couple other passages that we'll get to in a while. I often don't mind referencing future passages in Matthew because I know it might be a while before we actually get them. So in Matthew 11, which actually is just coming in a couple of weeks, listen to this. Uh, This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 18 through, uh, through 19. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. And so a man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's interesting there, as Jesus is refuting with the religious people, notice that uh, for religious people, you can never get it right. right? Like, you're never doing enough, and you're never not doing enough. Right? And yet Jesus continually refutes this reality, and he befriends tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Luke 5 describes this scene as well, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi uh, sitting at the tax booth. Also, just side note, uh, the Matthew, the, this Matthew, this Levi is not the gospel writer Matthew, not the same Matthew, okay? Just a side note. He said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, notice what Levi does. Notice what Matthew does. Notice his, his response. Like, notice how he's compelled in his obedience to Jesus. He says this, Levi made him a great feast in his house. So what's, what's, what's the response to Jesus? A feast, right? And notice what happens, and there was a large feast company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them and the pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance one one more back in matthew listen to this uh, okay i'm, I'm going to start in twenty-one twenty-eight what do you think? A man has two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. <laughs> but afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Right? So just another example that Jesus breaks some barriers down, right? Kind of readjusts our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And ultimately we see him befriending the worst of the worst, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to be in the kingdom before the scribes, before the, before the, the trained, before the people that know all the verses, before the preachers, before the church attenders. Right? Now, Couple of questions. First, I think I think this text enables us to ask this question: Who will we befriend? Actually, no. I'm going I'm to change it. Do we realize that we are the tax collector? Let's start there. We're the tax collector. We're the prostitute. <laughs> I know that, like, we're like, no, I'm not. I'm a flower. <laughs> like, I am wonderful. I am good. No, you're a tax collector and a prostitute. Right? And yet, and yet, Jesus befriends you. Jesus befriends us. Right? Like, I, I, I think we have to be in awe of of this reality that regardless of what your dirtiness might be, like whatever shame you might be carrying, whatever guilt you might be carrying, whatever hidden secret thing that you have that no one else knows about, Jesus does, and he's still willing to befriend you. Jesus befriends sinners, regardless of the depth or the depravity. Jesus befriends us who were despised, us who were lost, us who were wicked and rebellious. Jesus befriends us. So start there. The second question then is who will we befriend? And I think it's easy for us to say, well, anyone, anyone. But no, really, think about it. Like, how do you act when someone who is not like you is in your presence? Like, like, like someone who you see them from a distance and you put them into a category and you write them off. Because you just know automatically, like, oh, we don't have anything in common. We live different lives. We come from different socioeconomic scales. We're just different. Or, or we, have, we have different morals. We have different ethics. We have different beliefs. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't require Matthew to pass any sort of, like, test. He just says, come and follow me. And he follows. And I assure you, Matthew's life was transformed. Like, Matthew learned how to obey Jesus. Matthew learned how to stop tax collecting. Like, he put the old life away. He ended it and entered into a new way of living, a new way of flourishing. But it revolved entirely around the person of Jesus. Right? And so, you know, I was trying to think of, of a specific, the one specific that I can think of in our, our culture today as far as who might be the unlovable or the most Distant, far off, and I think it's the LGBT community. Like, I think there's, there's, there's more right? so i 'm going to try to flesh this out and nuance this as best as I can with my notes. <laughs> um, so in October. Uh, the elders, we got to go to Boise for an elders intensive. And part of that intensive, we went to a conference, and it was on faith and sexuality, put on by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. Uh, he's kind of become an expert in this area of study, as far as equipping followers of Jesus in how to love those in the LGBT world. Uh, and he does, a, he does a few things. First off, he, he, he tells us, he teaches us how to not treat it like an issue. Because guess what? People are never issues. I mean, that's what we see with Jesus. Like, he addresses the tax collector as a person, as a human, not as an issue or a cause to be fixed and just corrected and made right, as far as he defines right. But then the other thing that he does is, that Jesus does, and that, that President Sprinkle taught in this conference was just this reality of presence. That that it's it's one thing to have our theological categories correct. It's another thing to be present with people. And here's the thing as followers of Jesus, because this is going to ramp up, uh, in case you haven't noticed, in the world that we exist in. This is going to ramp up. And so we need to be equipped and to know how are we going to love? How are we going to engage those in the LGBT community? And and more than that. Right? And I think presence is what it is. And, and here's here's the tension. We can be present with people who we disagree with religiously, morally, ethically, and still love them. Like, as followers of Jesus, we can still hold firmly to the biblical uh, ethic of marriage and sexuality, and yet be present with those who, I mean, let's be honest, we don't even know how to talk to them, right? Like... How, how are you gonna start that conversation? Because most of the time it's like, well, here, let, me tell you, let me tell you why you're wrong and then what will make you right and then what will enable us to continue in relationship. And yet Jesus starts with presence. Like he just begins by being present with sinners. And don't get me wrong, he, he calls sinners to repentance. Like, we have to hear that. But I, I think at the same time, I think sinners in the presence of Jesus are compelled to repentance. And so, who, who will we befriend taproot? That's a hard question. Uh, and I, and I, I asked that question being so far from perfect. I, the, I think the closest example to me that I was working through this is uh, my neighbor across the street, man. You guys have heard stories about my neighbor. Uh, he, he, he terrifies me. Because his, his first interaction with me was, you can shoot my dog. Like, that's what he said. We're having baby sheep. If your dog comes over, we'll shoot it. Nice to meet you, sir. <laughs> like, okay. And he... We hear him all the time, all the time. We hear him across the street yelling at his kids, at his wife, at his animals, like just, just yelling. That, like he has, he has no volume besides aggressive, demeaning, cursing, terrifying yelling. Like he's the last person I want in my presence. But he's the person that Jesus says to be in his presence. That's hard. And so you all have to think of that. Like you all have to walk away from this text and and be in awe of the fact that Jesus befriended sinners. Like the worst of the worst of the worst of the depraved sinners. Include yourself in it. And then ask, you know, am I gonna befriend people like Jesus? Now, I also wanna address this. Brunner brings this up in his commentary and just kind of asks, you know, how far do we take this practically? Um, and I would say this, that some of you as followers of Jesus are not ready to befriend everyone just yet. Because there's also this, this concept of, um, let's see, well, for one, maybe you're just not kind. Right? Like, if we, if we can't be kind, fruit, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Like, if we can't start there, then let's hold off. Let's mature a little bit until we can enter into uncomfortable relationships with kindness and patience right? in, a, in a posture of learning and listening before correcting. Okay. Paul talks about this idea of, like, bad company corrupting good morals, I'll just be honest, like some, some might just be too, don't be offended, but like too weak as followers of Jesus. Like, like you're just, you're easily kind of drug along into a world that's taking you away from Jesus, right? And if, if that's the case, like I think you just need to be aware of that, right? Like who, who are you keeping company with on a regular basis because believe it or not, that company is influencing you. And so I think those are just a couple of considerations for us as we think of befriending sinners our, ourselves. But at the end of the day, I think what we should all see clearly is this, is that we need to be quick to be kind and merciful like Jesus. Here's, here's, here's how he says it. Uh, but when he heard it, uh, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Uh, Jesus is not declaring that the Pharisees are well. I, I, think he's, I think he's flipping their world upside down and challenging them with some their own heart assessment. Because here's what he says. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you can have all of the sacrificial stuff right, but still miss mercy. And and then if that's the case, then you're missing the big picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, And the idea of mercy it's, it's the idea of kindness. The, the, the language that's in Hosea 6.6, 6, which is what Jesus quotes, uh, is steadfast love. He says, I desire steadfast love. And I, and I think that's a, that's a perfect picture of when we befriend sinners, which again is just all humanity, right? Like, is it, is it done so with mercy or steadfast love? That means a love that persists through a myriad of ups and downs and extreme challenging difficulties to our own world, right? yet it persists. Uh, and it's hard, and there's not like an easy, here's step one, two, three, and this is what's gonna be the result. Like, it doesn't work out like that. Uh, believe it or not, humans are really complex. Right? Jesus understands that. He's patient. Oh, he's so patient. I hope we can be in awe of how patient Jesus has been with us. Man. All right, number three. Jesus is better because he is the presence of joy. Listen to verse 14. We'll read through the rest here. Then the disciples of John, so we have a third category now of uh, people who are coming against Jesus. They came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Uh, some, some manuscripts add Often. Right, So there's this, there's this picture that we're supposed to get here that, that the Pharisees and the disciples of John are like, hey, we fast a lot. Like we deprive ourselves a lot to show how serious we are about these religious things. And Jesus, verse 15, said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? All right, so Jesus is referencing himself as the bridegroom. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. That's us. That's now the church. But he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, if you're wondering, what does all of this mean? I mostly don't know. (laughs) Interestingly enough, same thing with most of the commentators. They're actually really quick to punt on this one. Like Brunner was literally like, "You, like you could just, you could feel Bruner shaking, like doing this." He was like, "I don't know." <laughs> but here, here is what we do know. Whatever, whatever Jesus is saying, whatever Jesus is getting at, at the at the very core is this reality that he is ushering something new into existence. Something new, something better, something more joyful. Like the language of his kingdom is a party. It's a wedding banquet in which his people are united with him and are feasting with him. Right? And, and so we have to imagine the, a, wedding, a wedding banquet in, in Jesus' day for Jewish people was a week-long celebration, a week-long party, Right, some of you are like, man, I get tired of like a half-day-long wedding. Right, you're like ready to go home. That was insane. Couldn't they have kept it shorter? This party was for a week, and then and then too, you have this reference to um, wine, and wine in the Bible always, almost always, is symbolic. Almost always, is symbolic of joy and celebration. And, and, and the presence of the reality of the kingdom. Okay. Now here, here's, here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Like, I think Jesus is just simply saying that he's better than the Old Covenant, Which is really interesting. Because on one hand, I think it just asks the logical question of like, well, what about the Old Covenant then? And how can Jesus just come along and say, that he was better? He does. And the writer of Hebrews actually is the one that really describes this for us. I just want to read Hebrews 8. And it's short-ish. It says this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, it's Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Four, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out to the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant for i so for, and so i showed no concern for them declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus is better. Jesus is the better covenant. Jesus does away with the old. Now, that doesn't mean that we're like to ignore the Old Testament. But it's meant to help us understand that the whole story is pointing where? To Jesus. Jesus. The whole story is pointing us to Jesus, and we're left with this reality that ought to produce a deep joy in us, right? Like, like, like Hebrews 8, like that, it ought to produce like this joy, exuberant, like, holy moly, I don't have to worry about killing animals to atone for my sins. Jesus did it. Right? Jesus did it. And so Jesus is better. He forgives sins. Jesus is better because he befriends sinners. Jesus is better because he is the presence of joy. And the invitation to us this morning is to enter into this this life, this reality of the presence of Jesus. And so will we? Will we follow this, this Lord? He's worth following on Sprite Church. Jesus, we thank you that you... That you set us free to a new life in obedience to you. I pray that you would continue to show us clearly what this means. Jesus, I pray that we'd be in awe of, of your declaration of forgiveness of sins, that we would be in awe of being justified, made right before God. Jesus, that we would be in awe of how you have befriended us and uh, that, that you have befriended us not to just leave us to ourselves in our own ways but to make us new. Jesus, thank you that you call us into a better life, a better flourishing. Jesus, thank you that, that in your presence there's fullness of joy. I pray that you would enable us to just sink deep into that reality. So maybe we respond to you now in song, communion, in awe of of who you are, worshiping you, glorifying God. In your name we pray, amen.